my Aunt Kay was gigging along in years. And one Christmas season, she just decided she had gotten to the age where she could no longer go out and buy Christmas presents. It was just too much for her. And so what she decided to do uh, was to um, write checks to everyone in the family and send out uh, some Christmas cards. And so uh, she sat down at her desk and, and she wrote a check for everyone in the family, put them in a stack. And uh, she wrote these Christmas cards out and they all read, Merry Christmas, buy your own presents. <laughs> well, about the 5th of January, Aunt Kay was cleaning the house and uh, she was rummaging through one of her kitchen drawers and she found a stack of checks. And to her horror, she realized that that year for Christmas, she had sent out to everyone in the family cards without checks in them that read, Merry Christmas, buy your own presents. <laughs> we still tell that story every year at Christmas. And uh, we still uh, greet each other by saying, Merry Christmas, buy your own presents. Preparation is important, though, isn't it? We want all of those details to be right. And especially at Christmas time, we want to make sure everything is perfect. We want to make sure all the baked goods come out of the oven just right, that we've got enough of them uh, for everyone in the family who's going to be expecting uh, our baked goods. We go out shopping. We want to make sure we get mom just the right thing this year or get the grandkids the right thing this year, something that they don't already have. And so we're, we're a little stressed about it, but uh, we want to make sure we go get the right things. Sometimes it involves uh, uh, knocking over a nun to get the last hatchimal or whatever the latest, uh, latest gift is. But we want to make sure we get out there and get the right thing because preparation is so important. We're building up to that moment where they're going to open up the gift and their eyes are going to get wide and they're, and they're going to see the thing that they've been hoping and dreaming for uh, for all these months. We decorate to prepare. Uh, around this time of year, I get, um, I get Facebook envy because I look on Facebook and I see how everyone's decorated their houses and, and the, the outsides of their houses are all uh, lit up um, with, uh, with, with Christmas lights. Um, I don't put Christmas lights up. That's too much work. I thought about the thing you can get at Walmart that will just like, it's a, a little thing and it'll shine the lights on it. But I thought, I have to go out there and put it up and uh, I have to plug that extension cord somewhere. That's too much work. And so, so I don't do that. I'm thinking about maybe just getting a, uh, a nice menorah to put in the window. Um, so that uh, people will, will think we're Jewish and they won't judge us for not having our lights up. Um, but preparation is important. Getting all of those details just right. And so our season leading up to Christmas becomes consumed with all of this preparation. And I wonder sometimes if we're focusing on the right things. If we're preparing ourselves for Christmas in the right way. After all, you and I know that it's about the Christ child. It's about welcoming the, the newborn king into our lives. 
But how does one prepare for that? How does one get ready for that? So our passage this morning that we're about to read is is about that preparation, how you prepare for the coming king, how you get yourself ready. And the 40th chapter of Isaiah um, is a sudden shift. The, uh, The first 39 chapters of Isaiah have been about judgment, have been about what's going to happen if you don't turn back to the Lord, what's going to happen if you don't uh, love your neighbors? And then the 40th chapter of Isaiah fast forwards. The people are in exile. That thing that was going to happen, happened. And they're dealing with the ramifications of it. It's, it's, it's a generation later. They're uh, in exile and... They're coming to terms with why. But Isaiah has to prepare them for a new time. He has to round the corner in verse 40 and prepare them for the coming of the king. For the time when they're going to go back to Jerusalem. For a time when the punishment is going to be over and they will celebrate again. And Isaiah, who has spent his whole career telling them all the bad that's going to happen, has to suddenly shift gears and get them ready to celebrate again. And so Isaiah, in the 40th chapter, hears these voices. Bible scholars say they're probably the voices of angels. They're calling out to one another, and Isaiah is just witnessing, just being in the middle of this conversation, and he's hearing these voices that are telling Isaiah to get ready, to prepare the people. And so let's read that together, Isaiah, the 40th chapter, verses 1 through 11. Hear now the word of our Lord. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling, In the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all mankind together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the God stands forever. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with the shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. 
This is the word of God. May it find its way into our hearts and lives this morning by the power of his Holy Spirit. Amen. So, how do we prepare? How do we get ready for the coming king? How do we make room in our hearts for the Christ child this Christmas? The voices tell Isaiah to prepare first by comforting the people. It's right there in verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. We begin preparing for the coming of the king by bringing words of comfort and forgiveness to the people. See, Isaiah is making this shift. He's going from this uh, time of, of, of judgment and of warning to this time of comfort and of peace. The people in exile have absorbed the fact of their sin. The people in exile have absorbed the message that, that the reason for their predicament, the reason for the state that they are in, is because of what they did back in Israel. Because of their unfaithfulness to God. And because of their unfaithfulness to one another. They have absorbed that message. They understand why they are exiled in Babylon. And the time has come for a new message. The time has come to proclaim to the people forgiveness and comfort. That the time of suffering is over and that the time of comfort has come. That the time of mourning is over and the time of celebration is near. You see, I think sometimes as a church, we're good at message one, right? Sometimes we're really good at, at the judgment part. We're really good at all the ways you've messed up. But you know what? Sometimes I feel like the church, just uh, that the people in the world, just like those people in exile, have kind of absorbed that message. Right? They've kind of absorbed where, where Christians stand and all the great issues of the day. They've kind of absorbed the message of judgment. And the message that Jesus loves you that Jesus stands ready to save, that Jesus stands ready to comfort, that Jesus stands ready to forgive, that your king is here and he's more like a shepherd than a warrior. That message has had a little trouble getting out. Every parent knows this, that there's, a, there, there's, this, there's this moment when you have to pass from punishment to comfort. There, there, there's this moment when the punishment is over, when, when the kid has served his time. He sat on his bed long enough, or he's been grounded from his screens long enough. Notice I keep saying he. <laughs> there comes this time when the punishment is over, and you got to take the boy and got to scoop him up and put him in your arms and say, it's over. We're not mad anymore. You're forgiven. 
there comes a time when, 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 when the, the punishment is over and the comfort has to begin. And, and good parents just sort of sense it, right? And our father is a good, good father, right? And he senses that moment in the lives of the people. It's time to move from punishment to comfort, from condemnation to forgiveness, And we, church, who live on the other side of the cross, we, church, who are called to be proclaimers of the good news, who are called to be proclaimers of the gospel, we live in zone two. We live in a time of comfort and forgiveness. We live in a time that says, come out of the shadows, come out of your exile, come out of your punishment. Here is your God. That's where we're called to be. I think of this uh, short story by Ernest Hemingway. Um, it's, it's about uh, uh, this, this, this family of Spaniards and the father and the son have this falling out. And the son says, well, I'm just going to leave. And the father says, why don't you go then? And the son, his name is Paco, he leaves. And he goes to Madrid. After a couple of weeks, the father, whose heart was so hard, is suddenly softened. He thinks of his son, and he says, what have I done? And so he goes back to Madrid to fetch his son. The problem is Madrid is a really big city. The other problem is that Paco is a very common name. And so uh, the father's wandering all around the city uh, trying to find his son. Uh, Have you seen Paco? And, And every clue he gets leads him to a dead end. And finally, what he decides to do is, is to take out an ad in the local paper. And the ad reads, Dear Paco, all is forgiven. Meet me at the Hotel Montana at noon on Tuesday. Love, Papa. He waits a couple days for a message to get out. Then the time comes. It's noon Tuesday. The father goes to the Hotel Montana, and there are 700 young men named Paco, all needing to be reconciled with their fathers. Ernest Hemingway was no Christian, but he understood our human condition. All of us born estranged from God, all of us born in exile, needing forgiveness, needing to hear those words of comfort. All is forgiven. Love, Papa. So that's the first thing. Comfort those in need. Comfort those who need to hear those words of forgiveness and reconciliation. I'm sure you can think of those people in your own lives. I think of people in our community maybe who are jailed. And they need to know that when they get out, there's a community here that loves them, that stands ready to forgive them, that stands ready to be reconciled with them, that knows that the time for punishment is over and that the time for comfort has begun. Think of people who are drug-addicted. It's a self-imposed exile, but it's exile nonetheless. 
And they need to know that it's okay to come out of that life, that they will receive comfort and forgiveness, a peace that passes all understanding. If they will just come out. I think of those that serve overseas, that, that bravely stand in the gap for us and for our freedom, but who don't get to come home for Christmas this year. They need to know that, that, that their people back home are thinking about them, that they love them, and that they'll be embraced when they finally come back. I think of people in my own life that I need to be reconciled with, that need to hear my words of comfort and my words of forgiveness this Christmas. Maybe I prepare for Christmas. Maybe I prepare for the coming of the Christ child by burying the hatchet with them. The other way we prepare is in verse 3. A voice of one calling. In the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. It's time to make a highway. See, in the ancient world... You didn't have paved highways. You can have paved roads in your own town, but between the towns you didn't have paved highways. That's something that the Romans came up with so that they could move their troops really quickly from one place to another as a part of having a big empire. But in Isaiah's time, you didn't have these paved highways. And so if you found out that the king was coming to your town, you had to make a highway. You had to make the way straight because he'd be coming with all of his horses and all of his caravan and all of his, his, his soldiers. And so you'd have to go out there and get rid of the big rocks and, uh, and, and make a straight path, make good signs that showed the king the way to get to your town. And that's the image Isaiah is using. Make the way straight. Get rid of all of the obstacles. The Wednesday before um, Thanksgiving, we were in Kentucky and uh, we realized that our car needed some quarts of oil. So we stopped at Walmart and I went into Walmart to get some quarts of oil and uh, I noticed that all of the aisles were really wide and all of these aisles at Walmart um, had tape on the floor delineating lanes. And they had arrows saying, this lane goes this way and this lane goes that way. And I noticed that a lot of the merchandise was like, was, 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 was wrapped up on these pallets. I thought, what in the world is going on at this Walmart? It's not that crowded. Why do they need these, these, these highways, right? And then it dawned on me. It's the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. Black Friday starts on Thursday now. And Walmart has to be ready. They literally have to make a straight path, a highway, so when the crush of people comes, no one gets hurt. I would submit to you, there is a highway, literally and figuratively, between the world and our church. There is a highway 
from the front door to the altar. And it's our job to prepare the way, to make it straight, to get rid of all of the obstacles. And I'm afraid sometimes we go too far in the other direction. We're supposed to be making the way straight and we put up a couple hurdles instead. Um, on, uh, on, on Friday, I had to take uh, Savannah to the dentist and we go to Cool Smiles in Christiansburg. And uh, Cool Smiles is really cool. They've got like slides and they've got like video game kiosks and stuff for the kids to play at while they're waiting. And so like as soon as we got there, Savannah ditched me and went to the kiosk. And I sat down and started to fill out this paper that I always have to fill out every time I go to the dentist, the same paper for some reason. And there on the screen, on the monitor, they were playing one of my favorite Christmas movies. Home Alone. And it was at the good part. And you know what the good part is. The good part is when Harry and Marv show up at the house and uh, Kevin McAllister has, has booby-trapped the entire house so that the burglars can't break in. And I was like, yes, this is awesome. I remember just fast-forwarding to this part when I was a kid just to watch this part. And, uh, and Harry and Marv were, were getting there as they were, they were sliding down the icy steps they're uh, pulling on the thing and the iron coming and hitting their face. Uh, saw, uh, saw Harry's head get, uh, get blown with a uh, blowtorch, right? Um, uh, it was awesome. Because I was preparing this message, I was thinking about the way Kevin McAllister booby traps his house. And I'm afraid sometimes we booby trap our church. Sometimes we make all of these little hurdles, all of these little traps between the front door and the altar. And you have to ask yourself sometimes, how badly do you want someone to kneel at this altar and receive Christ into their heart? Badly enough to change? Badly enough to let some people in here that we wouldn't normally think about legging in here badly enough uh, not to, to, to turn around and stare at someone if, if they accidentally gasp, let out an amen, right? Or if they stand at the wrong time. Have we booby-trapped our church? Have we made it harder for people to enter? Is, is, is there a perception out in the community, rightly or wrongly, that a certain type of person goes to this church and all others aren't really invited, no matter what we say? I don't know the answer to that question. I'm just asking. Have we booby-trapped this church? Have we put up hurdles? Is it time to make the way straight? It's a question. We need to answer. Here's another question. First, what are you willing to sacrifice? What are you willing to change for one soul to be reached? What are you willing to give up for one soul to be reached? Where do you draw the line? And the second question is this. What is Jesus willing to give up? And where did he draw the line? 
I'm guessing you got two different answers. Right? I'm guessing we've got two different answers. I once attended a seminar by this, uh, by this pastor who specialized in revitalizing dying churches. And one of the things he said is um, it's easier to plant a new church than to turn around the church that's dying. When you plant a new church, you can come up with all these new ideas and, uh, and people just you know, really take to them. And um, when you try to turn around an, uh, a dying church, you're sort of going against the current sometimes. And, and, uh, and he talked about um, this, one of the first churches he, he turned around. It was a dying congregation. And um, they had, you know, um, seven or eight on a Sunday, and they were all of an older generation. And he, uh, he, he said, you know, I decided to start a recovery ministry for, uh, for, for, for people who were uh, addicted to drugs. And a lot of people just didn't like the kind of person that this was drawing into the church. People that smelled like cigarettes, honestly. People that uh, were not clean and, and were not neat and didn't respect all the little signs around the church. He said, you know, I had to say goodbye to some people that left the church over that. But then he said that the church got so full of people experiencing recovery and inviting their friends to experience recovery and coming down to the altar and inviting their friends to come down to the altar that they had to take up the pews so that they could have more room for more chairs. Now imagine your reaction if I walked in here. I'm not, just this is hypothetical. If I walked in here and said, we're going to take up all the pews so we have more room for more people. Imagine your reaction to that. I can imagine my reaction if I were sitting in one of the pews. We always have pews. Why would we take these up? Right? But the question is, what would you be willing to give up? What obstacle would you be willing to do away with to see one soul saved? And then what would Jesus be willing to give up? And are those two different answers So the way is straight. The obstacles are removed. There's one last thing. Verse 9. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with the shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. You can rip out all the pews. You can make the way straight. Um, You can create the most comforting and forgiving atmosphere. But if you don't go out and tell people about it, they're not going to come, right? Part of preparing, part of preparing for the coming king is going out, standing on the mountain and proclaiming the good news. And I get it. We're Methodist. We're more of like discipleship Bible study type of people, right? Evangelism is something Baptists do. I get it, right? But there's a reason why the Baptist parking lot is full. Because they go out and tell people. And we got the goods, church. We got the goods, family. Go out and tell people. You know what I think one of the obstacles to evangelism is? 
I think we get in this cycle of depression about evangelism. I think we say to ourselves the poisonous words, we've tried that before, it didn't work. Think of a church I served at, um, one of the first churches I ever worked at in Barberville, Kentucky. And they talked about a time 20 years ago, 20 years ago, when they decided to have a, a dinner for the homeless. And they said, we tried that. Everyone got excited. Everyone cooked their best dishes. Um, we we're going to do it um, the day before Thanksgiving. And, um, and then no one came. We tried that. It didn't work. And I remember saying, well, how did you promote it? How did you tell people about it? And they said, well, we put an ad in the paper. And I thought, well, if you're homeless, maybe an ad in the paper isn't the best way to reach you. Maybe you actually go where they hang out and tell them about it, right? But, but they just sort of got into this self-defeating attitude. We tried that once. It didn't work. The church sometimes has Gilligan's Island Syndrome, right? Remember the show Gilligan's Island? There's a couple things that used to bother me about Gilligan's Island, okay? One, um, Ginger packed for a three-hour tour, and she brought one outfit for every day for the rest of her life. I don't understand that. Two, every time they tried something to get off of that island, they tried it once. And if it didn't work, then they never tried it again, right? Next week, it was some other scheme to get off the island, right? They tried the bamboo raft. They, they got several feet away from shore. The bamboo raft springs a leak because of some boneheaded thing Gilligan does. And they're right back on the shore. And next week, it's not, let's fix the bamboo raft. Let's figure out what went wrong with the bamboo raft. Let's build it again. This time we'll tie Gilligan's hands. None of that. Next week they've moved on to coconut helicopter, right? And, and the church is the same way, right? We're just chasing solution after solution after solution. And we never circle back around the things and say, why didn't that work? Did we not tell people about that right? Is there something we could tweak next time that would make it just a little better and that would make it work this time? Sometimes we just get, 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 get poisoned by the, we tried that once before and it didn't work. We do that with our friends and family. That one person at work, you invited them once. It didn't work. I'm done with that. They can't be reached, right? You could actually... This is crazy. You can invite them to church twice. I know, this is radical stuff. Maybe a third time, right? Maybe a third time you invite that neighbor. I don't know. Maybe as many times as they need to hear it, you invite them. This is crazy talk, I know. But to stand on the mountain and proclaim is the full-time job of the church. We don't try it once and then decide it doesn't work. We don't try it once and decide that's not what the people want to hear. We don't try it once and decide, well, the people down the road are better at it, so we'll let them do it. It's the full-time job of the church to stand on the mountain and proclaim, here is your God. The time for misery 
and punishment is over. The time for forgiveness and good tidings has begun. So that's how you prepare for Christmas. You're probably thinking, all that stuff you mentioned about getting ready for Christmas, that has to do with other people, right? And how I treat other people. Weren't you going to tell me something about how I get my heart ready? Weren't you going to tell me to pray and read the Bible? Good stuff. Keep doing that. But what we do to prepare for Christmas does necessarily have to do with other people. One story and I'm done. It's an old uh, medieval story about a man named Brother Martin. Brother Martin's a monk that lives alone in the middle of the woods. He prays to God. One night on Christmas Eve, he has a dream. And Jesus visits Brother Martin in his dream. And Jesus says, tomorrow, Christmas Day, I am coming to visit you. Brother Martin wakes up from his dream and he realizes it's a vision from the Lord. And he gets excited. Jesus is coming to my house today. I have to get ready. So he does all the things you do when you get ready. He sweeps the entire house, makes sure there's not a speck of dust. He uh, reaches into his cabinet and out of this sack, he pulls all of the silver Stuff he never eats on by himself, but, but when he's going to have a visitor, and when the visitor's going to be Jesus, he's going to put out that silver, right? And so he puts all the silver on the table, and then he, uh, he uh, goes out back, he kills the pig, and he's going to make a Christmas ham. After all, Jesus is coming, and only the best for Jesus. And so uh, he decorates the place, and uh, he lights all of the candles in every room so that when Jesus shows up, um, it will be a place full of light and full of warmth, and it will be so welcoming. Well, early in the morning, a knock comes on the door, and uh, Brother Martin goes to answer the door, and uh, when he gets there at the door, uh, it's a scruffy old man. He says, uh, I hate to ask this, I know it's Christmas, but um, I've been traveling for a long time and I have a long ways to travel. And I've simply run out of money. And um, I have many places I'm going to need to lodge on my journey. I'm going to need to be able to buy meals. I was just wondering if you could spare any money for me. And Brother Martin thinks to himself, um, I really don't have time for this. Jesus is coming. I really uh, cannot be bothered with this guy's problems. But he just can't help it. He's a kind man. And he looks at that table. And he sees all the silver on the table. And he goes and gets his bag. And he clears the silver off the table into the bag. And he says, here, take this. Uh, I'm sure this will be able to get you all the provisions you need on your journey. And the man goes off. And Brother Martin thinks, well, I hated to part with that silver, but I've, I've still got the wood, so um, we can still have a meal. Well, several hours later, another knock comes on the door. And Brother Martin goes to, to answer the door, 
Maybe it's Jesus. Maybe he's finally come. It's about that time. The, the ham smells about ready. It's starting to waft. And uh, so he answers the door, but it's not Jesus. Um, it's an old nun. And uh, Brother Martin looks at the old nun and says, What can I do for you, sister? And she says, Well, I hate to ask this of you. I know it's Christmas, but back at the orphanage, we have nothing to feed the kids for our Christmas meal. Do you have anything? Brother Martin, to be honest, thought about lying. But then he realized that the ham was in the oven and uh, the nun could probably smell it. And, you know, his kindness just got the better of him. And she said, okay. He goes in the oven, he gets the ham, and he, you know, puts the thing on it and, uh, and gives it to the nun and sends her on her way. And he thinks to himself, well, we don't have the silver. We don't have the ham. I've still got a fire in the fireplace. I've still got the place lit up pretty. Um, when, when Jesus comes, uh, we'll just, uh, we'll just uh, spend some time together uh, by the warmth of the fire and get to know one another. Well, many hours pass. It's late in the evening, and a knock comes on the door. Finally, it must be Jesus. So Brother Martin goes to the door, he opens the door, and it's a little girl. And uh, Brother Martin says to the little girl, what's going on? Why are you here? Uh, don't you have family to be with? And she says, I'm trying to get back to my house, but I've gotten lost. And here I am in the middle of the woods, and I, I saw your house, and it had the lights on, and um, I thought maybe you could show me the way back home to the village. Brother Martin looked around his house and thought, well, I'm really supposed to be waiting for Jesus. But his kindness got the better of him. And so he put out the fire in the fireplace. And he blew out all the candles. He said, come, little girl, with me, and took her back to town. That night, Brother Martin goes to sleep. Jesus still hasn't shown up. And so as he's laying there sleeping, he has another dream. And in his dream, Jesus comes to him once again. And Brother Martin says to Jesus, Jesus, you told me you were coming over to my house for Christmas. I laid out all the silver. I prepared a ham. I, I lit up the house, put fire in the fireplace, and you never showed up. And Jesus says to Brother Martin, you hosted me three times yesterday. First, I showed up as a, as a stranger in need of silver. Then I showed up as orphans in need of food. And then I showed up as a little lost girl in need of hunger. And three times yesterday, you hosted me. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Preparing for Christmas is all about what you do for other people. It's all about the comfort and the forgiveness you offer other people. It's 
all about removing the obstacles between other people and God. And it's all about standing on the mountain and proclaiming. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.